Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and it is great to be back to host episode 15, our 16th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Jason Moore, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stoffer. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, hi, Marilyn. It's great to see you and Michael uh, virtually yet again. Um, uh, I uh, got to attend virtually one of my favorite workshops, annual workshops, the Genetic Programming Theory and Practice Workshop, GPTP, which is, I always find so stimulating. This is an invitation-only, small, 30, 40 people, computer science workshop, artificial intelligence workshop that I've been going to for 15 years, and amazing group of people, and I always come away with research ideas. Um, I gave a talk on our teapot automated machine learning method and really enjoyed the workshop. We didn't, we canceled it last year because of the pandemic. So I, I was really missing it. It was great to, great to be back and see a lot of friends and familiar faces. Um, been busy the last couple of weeks. We just completed faculty reviews, annual reviews. I'm a division chief and have a number of faculty that I'm responsible for in my department. So we just went through all their annual reviews and uh, it was fun and exciting to see all the great things they've accomplished this past year, but it's a lot of work for them and a lot of work for us as well, but that's done. Um, I gave a talk on artificial intelligence for the Alzheimer disease research center network, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I submitted, uh, with Kate Nathanson, the competing renewal of our NHGRI T32 training grant in genomic medicine. So fingers crossed that that gets renewed. I participated in a departmental panel discussion on data science, which was a lot of fun. Um, we had a, a couple different people from different perspectives on the panel, and we talked about, you know, what is data science? What does data science mean for biomedical research? And uh, lots of issues and, and questions related to data science. We had a really fabulous discussion and a big audience, so that was, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoy those kind of panel discussion events when, when they're structured right, you know, when you really have kind of a free flowing uh, discussion. Um, preparing for a year of transition. Um, I have several postdocs leaving the lab. And so we're kind of, you know, every four or five years, it seems the lab goes through a big period of transition with a lot of people leaving and some new people coming in. So this is one of those years, but you know, I'm always sad to see people go, but excited for the new people and to, to work, have new colleagues to work with and new ideas and new research directions. So 
Um, looking forward to the, the coming year of transition. And related to that, of course, I have a new graduate student uh, that I'm excited about. And um, so she just started uh, in the lab. And I'm excited that Penn is opening up campus for return on July 1st. Um, and that's uh, pretty exciting, I think, for everybody to think about going back. We all know it's gonna be different, um, but people are gonna start trickling back this summer and into the fall. And hopefully we can we can reestablish some, some sense of, of new normal. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot over the next year and, and everybody's gonna be in the same boat trying to figure this out. You know, I'll give you an example, like we've been talking about, you know, a lot of meetings, at least for the first six or 12 months are gonna be mixed. Some people are gonna be at home on Zoom. Some people are gonna be on campus in person. And you can imagine that there are gonna be people in the lab on Zoom calls. Uh, so a lot of meetings are probably gonna be Zoom only and not in person. And so that's gonna be very disruptive for people around. You know, if you've got three or four people having a Zoom call all, all at once in the lab, that's gonna be very disruptive. So thinking about how to handle those kinds of situations is uh, a challenge that we're gonna have to address in the fall. Um, Marilyn, what have you been up to? Well, maybe I'll, I'll start where you just left off. So I'm doing the exact same thing that you are in terms of the transition planning and the post-COVID reality planning. So I've had five people leave the lab since December. Two graduate students graduated and went off to postdocs. A postdoc finished and went off to industry. A data scientist started as an instructor at Penn and one of my programmers left. And now, I and I have one more who's gonna be leaving in July, another instructor in the making at Penn, another data scientist um, moving on. But then I have um, a new, graduate student who just started, uh, who I'm you know, really excited has joined the lab. I have a post back who's gonna be starting in a couple weeks. So she's gonna come and work in the lab. She finished her a bachelor's degree and she's gonna come work for a year or two while she applies to grad school. Um, you introduced me to her, thank you very much. Uh, I'm really excited that she's gonna come work oh, in yeah, the lab. Oh yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, very excited. And then I have, uh, a slew of summer interns who are coming in. I think I have four summer, um, I have a, a rotation student and then four or three undergraduate interns for the summer and I'm super excited, but just trying to think through, you know, getting everybody oriented and what their projects are going to be. Um, but then also we're coming back to the lab. So we are going to start to go back two days a week starting in July. And uh, I am thinking about it as a reverse weekend. We're gonna come into the lab on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and then work from home the other three weekdays and then be home on the weekend. So it'll be in for two, home for five. We're gonna try it. I really am having a hard time wrapping my head around what it looks like because we've never done anything like this. And um, like you said, you know, when people are on Zoom calls, is it gonna feel like they work in a call center? You know. It, those like operator centers where you see everybody on the phones with their headsets, like, you know, in a telethon, um, that could be super disruptive. Um, and if people are talking in the lab at a whiteboard while somebody else is on a Zoom call, is that, I don't know, we're just going to have to try it and then be really flexible and adaptable until we figure out what the new reality looks like. But um, I'm really excited to, to think about it. I went into the lab one day last week. I'm going to go in one day this week as well. Um, I was like a kid in a candy store being in the lab for a day. I like forgot how fun it was to 
leave my house and talk to, you know, lots of, I ran into people, I ran into you and we had a meeting and a couple of other, other colleagues and I just was smiling all day and I forgot how much fun it was to go to work, which sounds so silly, but, <laughs> but I loved it. So I'm really excited um, to, to transition into this new reality. So, um, but a lot of planning is going into place to make that happen for sure. Um, other things, I just started a couple weeks ago with the, the ELAM program that I mentioned on the last podcast, but this is the Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine it's a women's leadership program. Um, it started, uh, we had an orientation and a session on uh, finances in academic medical centers, which I have to say was eye-opening. There's a lot that happens in the kind of behind closed doors of finances in academic medical centers. And they kind of pulled the curtain back on some of that uh, in the session earlier this week. And it, wow. I said, wow, there were, there were some things I don't know I ever wanted to know, but now I can't unsee them. So now I need to understand how, how they make all that work. I mean, they do, but wow, it's complicated. Um, and I'm starting uh, to design my IAP, which is an institutional action project. So um, part of this leadership program is that you have to design a project that you're going to do for your institution. And so I've started to have meetings about that and plan that out. I, Basically you plan it out in the summer and then the first part of fall, and then you really kind of get down to details through the fall and winter and start implementing it. And then in the spring you finish implementing and then write it up and present it to the, to the leadership. So um, really excited about this program. I've only had, I think two sessions so far. I have another one tomorrow. It's just, I'm loving it already. So really excited okay. about that. Congratulations. It's a, it's a very selective program. So nice job. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh I'm on these calls with, you know, 70 other women and I look at their titles and man, these are the, the leaders of academic medical centers on the rise. It's a very impressive group of women. I'm really honored to be one of them. Um, it's going to be exciting. What else? I just submitted an R01 last week. Um, I actually got it in on a Friday and the NIH due date was Monday. I was so excited that I got my weekend free. Like it was done. Everybody co-authors or, you know, co-investigators had looked at it, all the pieces were done. And so we uploaded it and it was great. <laughs> we had a weekend off. Wow. Yeah. That never happens. No. I, and I want, <laughs> now that I experienced it, I want it to happen again, because from the time I sent it for final review to the time it got uploaded to um, the NIH system was maybe 45 minutes. I've never seen it that fast, but it's because it was early. They didn't have 50 of them to go through. They just had mine. So it got reviewed so fast and uploaded. I couldn't believe it. Um, so it was good incentive to, you know, if you don't want to be sitting there, you know, biting your teeth, waiting for the, the email from ERA Commons saying that it was uploaded, submit it early. You know, the, um, the assistants in the grants office that do the uploading, um, you know, they, they do outstanding work. They work really hard, but, you know, sometimes they make mistakes because they're juggling 50 grants all at once. And, you know, I, I think for young people, uh, it's a good lesson. You know, if you get your grant done early, there's, there's a lot less likelihood that there's going to be a, a last minute mistake. Yep. And I will say it has only happened to me once in what, 17 years that I've been doing this, but in January, we, we're submitting something on the deadline. And they NIH says, submit it two days early to give yourself time for warnings and error checks and to fix it. We were late. I mean, it, we weren't late. It was the due date. 
but the system had an error and it would not let them upload all the files. And I feel like we might've even talked about this on the podcast back in January, but it was a good lesson to not wait till the last day because we couldn't find the error. And in the end, we had to submit it late. Now, luckily I had sat on study section. And so I was able to write a letter and have a two week extension. And we only needed, you know, the weekend. They basically, this was a Friday and they were able to figure it out and fix it by Monday. But it was one of those situations that if I had not been on study section, I'm not sure that it would have been accepted because NIH says submit it two days early in case there are errors. And we just didn't. So another lesson for young people, yeah, if they say submit it two days early, you really should do that because if you have an error, it's on you that you didn't get it fixed in time, not on their system. Um, other things I've been working on, I've been reviewing a ton of papers. I actually was thinking this morning, I need to, to rework on my boundaries and saying, no, I have said yes to way too many. They look interesting. And so I say yes. And then another one comes that looks interesting. And then suddenly I'm late on five manuscript or five journal reviews, you know, submitting the, the, the review of someone else's paper. And so um, it's taken up a lot of time, but there's a lot of good science out there. People have been really productive and innovative during the pandemic. So it's been fun to review them. Uh, I've been getting students ready. I had two take candidacy exams. One is defending next week. So even more transition coming. I'll have another student leaving at the end of the summer. Um, and then also, I, I know I've talked a few times about a lot of papers we've been working on. I've been doing page proofs. So I've like three journal papers and then a book. Um, the Genetic Analysis of Complex Disease, third edition, which is published by Wiley. You'll probably remember this book from, I mean, this was like the textbook we were using back when you and I were on the faculty at Vanderbilt. Well, I agreed along with Bill Scott from the University of Miami to edit the third edition. We started this, I think he was at Duke and I was at Vanderbilt. I mean, this was 10, more than 10 years ago that we started this. We wow. now have the page proofs for the book. It is coming out in 2021. I am thrilled. It is unbelievable to finally see this come to fruition. It was a lot of herding cats and a lot of work. And I'm so grateful to the authors that took the time to write and revise and re-revise their chapters because some of their colleagues took longer. And then it took so long that some things were out of date and you had to update it again, but it's coming out this year. So very excited about that. You know, I, I had this interesting thing happened to me recently. I, I edited a book on epistasis um, a number of years ago um, for the Methods in Molecular Biology series um, and uh, published by Springer. And they came back, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago and asked me if I wanted to do a second edition. And I said, no, because it was a huge amount of work, like you just described, you know, it took multiple years, getting people to finish chapters was like pulling teeth, I had to write a bunch of chapters myself, it was huge amount of work. And I was like, Nope, I do not want to do that again, I don't have time for that. And then um, out of the blue, I saw a book of the same title come out with different editors and what the publisher did was they went out and said, okay, if you're not interested in doing it, we'll find some people that are. And they went out and found new editors. And so there's a, there's a, a second edition. It has exactly the same title uh, with different authors and a whole new set of chapters. It was really weird. And at first I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> and, the, and the publisher reminded me, he's like, well, you turned us down. You said no. So we went out and found new authors. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that's fair. <laughs> yeah. But wow, that's weird. But it is yeah, weird. Your experience was exactly ours. It is a ton of work. And so again, here's a note, junior faculty, 
say no. Do not, <laughs> do not take on editing a book as a junior faculty. It is, it's not super easy. You just find people and they write chapters and then they send them to you and you just edit them. No, you find people, they don't submit their chapters on time. Some of them back out. Then you have to find new people. Then half of your people submit on time. The other ones don't. And so now the people who submitted earlier are actually penalized and have to update their chapters because they submitted them too soon, you know, on the deadline. It, I, I'm not sure I'll ever do it again. So I, I, didn't take your advice. And I did a lot of this kind of stuff early in my career for better or for worse. Um, and, but I, I, it, I don't know, see what you think, Marilyn. It, I, I remember getting asked to, to write a lot of book chapters early in my career. And I did a lot of that. I I've published dozens of book chapters again, for better or for worse. Um, and, but I, I'm not, and, and now, now I'm, arguably more successful, more famous, more well-known. And I, I don't get asked to write book chapters anymore. And, and is, is that, be, I think it's because people just aren't writing books as much anymore. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a different culture now that everything's online. And I don't know, I, I think people are more uh, averse to writing books, uh, you know, and, and there's the whole for-profit thing and, and you can self-publish books now, right? You can, you can, put books online, you can, you can self-publish them with publishers like Lulu and, and bypass the big, you know, Wiley and, and Springer and the big, you know, the big, uh, the big for-profit publishers. I, I don't know. What do you think, Marilyn? Are you getting asked to write as many book chapters now as you did earlier in your career? No, definitely not. Uh, and I think you're right. I think it is that there's just less books. It's especially in our field or our fields that, of, you know, that we work in things are moving so fast by the time you write a textbook or a book, it's almost out of date. I mean, cause it's a long process, right? You write the chapters and then you have to get them edited and then typeset. And so I think that's why I think there are fewer books, things that are really cutting edge don't belong in a book. They belong in the primary literature because there's just not time um, to get them out. So, so yeah, I've definitely written less. And one thing, I would say for junior faculty, writing chapters is fine. I think it's actually, I did also wrote a bunch of chapters as a junior faculty. I, I don't think it's a bad idea to write them. I think it's a bad idea to take on editing a book and having to herd the cats of other people writing their chapters. But writing chapters, I think is it's a great way to, to get your name out there. Yeah, I agree. I, I really enjoyed writing book chapters. I agree, editing books is a big pain, but writing book chapters can be fun. And what I like about it is you can say things in a book chapter that you can't say in a peer-reviewed manuscript in a journal publication. You can get away with making bolder claims or more controversial claims. And then, you know, and then once you say it in a published book chapter, then you can cite it in a grant, you can cite it in a paper. And so it's, it gives you a little more freedom to be a little more expressive, a little bit more cutting edge, a little bit more controversial. Um, and uh, so, and there's real value in that. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can leave feedback by email, feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter at BMIRpodcast and on our Facebook page. 
be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. The reviews help us improve the podcast, but also improve our visibility. My name is Wendy Chapman, and I'm the Associate Dean for Digital Health and Informatics at the University of Melbourne in Australia. You're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now, on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is the challenges of life science research. Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. So um, this past week or so, I, I ran across a very interesting blog post written by uh, a guy named Alexi Guzzi, G-U-Z-E-Y. And he wrote this in 2019, and the title was How Life Sciences Actually Work. So in this piece, uh, the author shares some of his insights on how life science is done, how research is done. And he draws his conclusions uh, based on the conversations with 60 students, postdocs, and PIs in, in the research space. Now, I found this to be somewhat of a pessimistic piece, but I think the points he makes uh, will resonate with many of us in academia. Uh, and, and as a side note, he has recently created a nonprofit called New Science to help promote change in research. And there's some prominent scientists and a couple of people I know that are on his advisory board. So I was really interested to find out what he thinks, what he's doing, what this new nonprofit's going to do. It sounds pretty interesting to me. So here, here are some of his findings that he summarizes in this blog piece, and we'll have a, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. So the first thing he says, he concludes, is that the pace of science is increasing. And he, he claims that this uh, argues against uh, the common perception that science is stagnating despite bigger investments being made. And I, I definitely agree with his take on this. I think the volume of science is definitely increasing at a rapid rate in line with bigger investments. I think we could argue about whether the quality of that science is worth the investment or is, is on par with the volume, but there's no question the volume of science is increasing despite maybe some common perceptions that it isn't. Um, his second conclusion is that nothing works the way you think it works. And I, I think this is entirely true. He gives one example, he gives a couple examples, but I'm sure we could come up with many more. Um, he talks about how the conventional wisdom at the NI with NIH grant reviews is that, that the NIH and NIH grant reviewers are risk averse, right? They don't like cutting edge, um, high risk stuff. They want to see incremental science, incremental improvements on, on existing work, because that's the safer bet. You know, it's going to work. You know, it's a good investment. Now, the counter to that, and, and so that's, that's how we think it works, right? That the NIH funds incremental science, and that's what you have to do to get funded. The reality is that many of us propose conservative science, incremental science in our grants, but then when we get the money, we do risky science anyway, once we get the funding. And so that's, you know, that, that may not be apparent to young scientists. Uh, they might think that if you propose incremental science in a grant that you actually have to do the incremental science um, once you get funded. And, uh, you know, I, I've certainly done risky things that uh, with grant money and published papers based on that. I think the important thing with NIH funding is that you're productive and it's less important once you have the money, whether it's incremental or high risk, as long as you're productive and moving the field forward. 
That's what the NIH cares about. Okay, so next he says, this is interesting. If you are smart and driven, you will find your way. Uh, and he addresses the misconception that to join a top lab as a graduate student, you need to be a straight A student coming from a top college or university. And he argues that if you're smart, if you're ambitious, if you're driven, that you'll find your way, that you'll, you'll get into a good lab and, and uh, get, get your start. And I agree with this completely. I personally put a lot more weight on motivation, tenacity, persistence than I do on grades or, or the prestige of the university that a student is coming from. Uh, I want to see that excitement, that motivation, right? That thrill of doing science. Uh, that's what I want to see. Because if somebody's excited, then they're going to work harder. And, you know, some of my best students and postdocs over my career didn't necessarily have the best resumes. They didn't come from the top colleges. They weren't necessarily straight A students. I certainly wasn't a straight A student. And I value creativity more than, um, uh, more than the straight A, the college, the university, the prestige, et cetera. All right, number four, um, which is related, I think, and builds on this is that nobody cares if you're a genius. And he makes the point that being a genius in science, you know, we all look up to geniuses, right? We all look up to the, we meet these people and they just exude intelligence, right? They've read every paper. They've got these great ideas. They talk intelligently about, uh, you know, new ideas and new, new research directions. They challenge other people on their work. We really admire those people. But his point is that there's a practical and political side to science, which requires skills that are not necessarily included in the definition of genius. So you might be scientifically gifted, and this is, this is his list, he says, but are you good at networking? Are you good at spin? Are you agreeable? Are you good at writing grants and knowing how to sell them? Are you good at finishing the papers that you start? Are you skilled at academic politics? Are you good at dealing with difficult people and bureaucracy? Do you have good self-esteem? Are you lucky? And I, I thought this was really insightful because there's a lot more to being a successful academic than just being smart. You have to have all these other skills. And if you look at the really successful people, they, they check a lot of these other boxes. And so uh, being a genius uh, is, is not enough. And I, I agree with him. And my, my PhD advisor, uh, Marilyn, did you meet my PhD advisor? I don't think I've ever met him. I've heard lots of stories, but I've never met him. Couple, couple of my former students have met him in various places. But anyway, my, my former PhD advisor, it's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he really was uh, far ahead of where the rest of the field was. He was very forward thinking, very intelligent, um, but he wasn't so good at all these other things. He was not a politician. He was not agreeable. Um, he did not get along with difficult people or bureaucracy. Um, and I think that held him back to, to some degree. Okay, so next, um, almost all biologists are solo founders. And he, he points out that businesses are more likely to succeed when you have two or three co-founders working closely together at the start. And the same is true for science. Scientific co-founders are important because they help you champion your research topic and help promote your ideas and your research results. And these synergies are invaluable, especially early in your career. Being a lone wolf scientist is common, but it's a much harder path. And I agree completely. I've benefited so much from having really close collaborators. 
Um, you know, people like Marilyn, um, who I worked with early in my career, uh, Scott Williams, who's been a close collaborator from the very start, um, and having those people you trust that see eye to eye with you, that are philosophically aligned, and that you can bounce ideas off and brainstorm and that support you and, and publish with you and write grants together, man, there, that is that is so, so very important as I look back on my career. Those close people, Folkert Osselbergs is another one I've worked with my entire career. Those people have been so important uh, to my research program. All right, uh, the next one was um, uh, insufficient space for people who just want to be researchers and not managers. In other words, universities need a pure researcher track. So I agree with this. And I think a lot of universities do have a pure researcher track. Um, and it's important to provide that and to mentor those people and to help them be successful because they don't wanna be managers. They just wanna do good science. And there's a, there should be a place for them. I agree with that. Okay, the next item on his lift, list is peer review is a disaster. And I think this should be obvious to anyone who's experienced uh, the peer review system, whether, whether it's journals or grants. You know, for example, last time we talked about reviewer number two, uh, you know, being a problem in, in journal and in grant reviews. And, you know, survival in academia depends on knowing and understanding that peer review uh, of papers and grants can be, can be biased. And as the author of this piece points out, you know, these are sometimes your competitors. They might not want to see you succeed. And that's one of the big problems with peer reviewed. And so success is about learning how to navigate the peer review minefield. And, you know, I mean, think about how we write responses in uh, to, to reviewers of papers and grants. We coddle their egos, right? We tell them how great they are and how important their criticisms are, even though they might be biased and we don't agree with them. So anyway, this is, uh, I think, a really interesting point that he makes. And, um, and let's see, next, uh, nobody agrees on whether big labs are good or bad. Um, and he, you know, there are pluses and minuses to eat each. And he goes on to discuss several other topics, including the focus of universities on maximizing profits, the worry about the quality of the scientific literature, raising money is difficult even for top scientists. We all struggle to raise money and, and some of us do it full time. And so he ends with some recommendations. He, he says, funders should seek out those good scientists who need money rather than respond to applications. He says, funders should experiment with how they give and hire economists to evaluate the impact of the giving. And funders should consider long-term funding models. So I don't, you know, I think these are interesting. I'm not sure they're good suggestions. I think they're interesting. I think we probably should explore other models. The current model is, I think we would all agree the current model's imperfect and there might be a better model out there. Um, but anyway, I don't know, Marilyn, what do, you, what do you think about this piece? I thought it was a great piece and I agreed with most of what, uh, what was in here. A couple of key points that I wanna go back to, the, the solo funder piece. You know, I think Certainly today, we're in a much better place than we were, say, 10 or 15 years ago, where on the one hand, we were hearing, you know, collaboration is good, data sharing is good, part, find good partners and collaborators, diversity and um, multidisciplinary science makes science better, which I think are all true. But on the flip side, at the, you know, a while ago, 
you were evaluated at your institution based on the impact you as an individual made on science. So your solo first author papers and your solo senior author papers and your funding as a PI. And so for a long time, I felt like there was a disconnect between what we were being told was the more innovative and impactful way to do science and then the way that we were being measured and they weren't consistent. And I think that's come a long way. Um, I can't speak for all institutions, but certainly where I have worked over the last 10 years, I've seen kind of a shift where evaluation for promotion includes collaboration and um, promotion and tenure committees are recognizing collaborative contributions, participation in consortia, having multi-PI grants or co-corresponding author papers or things like that becoming just much more accepted and, and even in some cases prioritized because you know rarely does one get, for example, a big program project grant or one of these big U mechanism, you know, these big consortia grants as a solo PI. A lot of times it takes two to three PIs with different expertise in order to do something like that. And so I do think now kind of the stars have started to align in terms of what we think is impactful and where the money flows and how people are evaluated for promotion. So I think that that's getting better. Um, and I agree with you. I, I, I do better work collaboratively. I mean, I, if I look back to grants that it was just my lab and I was the sole PI and I really didn't have a lot of other faculty, they generally don't do that well in terms of peer review. All of the time that I have good collaborative teams and you know, faculty with other expertise with mine, it, the papers do better, the grants do better. It's just, I think it's a better way to do science and it's more fun. It's a lot more fun to do it with friends. Um, and then the other thing was about funding. As I read his recommendations at the end, it did make me think about some of those articles we've seen over the last year or two about the, well, the big lab, small lab funding, and then the, the urban and rural funding. So there are things about how like the coasts of the United States get a much larger proportion of the funding than the middle of the United States. And you know, should there be efforts to move more of the money into the middle of the U.S. instead of on the coasts, or instead of all the money going to the big institutions, get more money to the smaller institutions, and instead of the big labs, go to the small labs, and it's a very complicated issue, because uh, somebody was giving a talk about this maybe in the last week or two, and they said, you know, we could put more money into the center of the country, but there aren't more people there to, to take, like, there aren't people writing the grants. I mean, there are some, but Population-wise, there aren't as many institutions and as many faculty and as many students. And so you can't just distribute it evenly because then there's money without people to do the work. But at the same time, if there was more money, they could hire more people. So it, it's, a, it's a very complicated issue. You know, what's interesting is the NIH actually does have a program to funnel money into poor, what they call poor NIH states, states that have very little NIH funding it's through NIGMS. And they have, they fund center grants that um, focus on young investigators giving R01 level funding. It's usually like 100, 150, $200,000 a year for a couple of years to a junior investigator, a promising junior investigator to help them sort of 
you know, uh, get to the point where they can write competitive R1s and there's heavy mentoring, there's some infrastructure because investigators at those institutions um, in poor NIH states don't have access to the same, um, you know, the same opportunities, the same infrastructure, the same collaborators um, that, that, you know, institution, bigger institutions, big cities have access to. And the thing I want to mention about that is it's not just a handout to poor states. It's um, uh, those investigators that get that money have a much, much higher success rate with getting R01s funded than investigators from the rich institutions. It's very interesting. And I think that mentoring component that, you know, that handholding through the process that's built into these big center grants. And I was a PI on one of these center grants when I was up in, up in New Hampshire at Dartmouth. So I know intimately how this works and it's a really nice program. It's a different model. Uh, the NSF has the UPSCORE program, which is, which is similar. And those programs are, you know, most people don't know about them, but those programs are very successful. Mm-hmm. And I think you're exactly right. It's the mentoring piece. I think that's probably a huge piece of it because there are a lot of big city institutions that have the sink or swim model, right? We gave you a startup, we brought you here, you're on your own, good luck get grants or you're out. And I think across the board, if we mentor our junior faculty, we get them to be more successful in their funding. So the funding issue is definitely one. And similarly at institutions, and I know you and I have talked about this over the years, but as I was reading this too about some of the um, big lab, small lab, access to unrestricted funds and things like that, that did make me realize this issue about um, how you get as a as a scientist, how do you get unrestricted funds to use? And I, I look to you to say if there are a lot of other ways, most of what I know is when you get recruited, you get a startup package that has some unrestricted funds. And if you get retained, you get some unrestricted funds. But other than recruitment or retention, how else do scientists get unrestricted funds. And and that's a model that I actually question. And I've questioned this for years. You know, if you just gave a faculty member, I don't know what the amount is, but, you know, a good solid faculty member, some amount of money every year, instead of them having them go out and get a job offer and then come back and threaten to leave and then give them a huge retention, like, would you have saved money if you just gave them a little bit that they didn't even go on the market? I'd be curious if any economists have done an analysis of that. It's like that at every institution I know of, but whether it's the smart way to do it, I, I don't know. I question it. I'm hoping it's one of the things I'll learn in this ELAM. Like, why is this recruitment and retention the only way that we give faculty money? Yeah, it's a good question, Marilyn. And I think this is something that junior faculty should think long and hard about, especially when they take a new position, is how to get access to discretionary money. Because that those flexible funds are critical. And I've enjoyed access to discretionary money my entire career. Going back to my Vanderbilt days, I had an endowed chair, uh, one of Vanderbilt's Ingram chairs that paid 50, as an assistant professor, paid me $50,000 a year of discretionary money. That that was a lot of money for an assistant professor. And that was money I, I used to buy computers and uh, high performance computing and send send people to conferences and buy the lab lunch. Um, and you know that 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 makes a huge difference um, in somebody's career. And I've enjoyed that 
those kind of resources my entire career, but they're not accessible to everybody. And it's the exception rather than the rule. And so you have to figure that out. You have to figure this, how do you play this game? How do you get access to discretionary money? That's a good question to ask when you go interview for faculty positions. How does, you know, when you're, if you're a finalist, if they're making you an offer, how, what, what, what's the plan for discretionary money after the startup funds run out? It's a, it's a really important question. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with the listeners, what my situation was at Dartmouth. I had, I had a pretty good, a pretty good situation there. Dartmouth, uh, when I was um, a tenure track faculty member at Dartmouth, I went there as an associate professor at the time. I don't know if they still do, but at the time we had 50% hard money support. And if we brought in uh, that 50% or, you know, m- much of that 50% on grants, then we would get 40% of that back into a discretionary fund. And based on my salary, I was getting close to $100,000 a year before I left back into a discretionary account, just because I was covering my salary on grants and getting a return on the salary that would normally go to, you know, go to me um, in my department. So that was a pretty good deal. And then I had an endowed chair that paid an additional $30,000 a year. And I had a retention that paid $80,000 a year, a commitment moving forward from a retention. So you add that up and it was $210,000 of discretionary money that I was getting as an assist, as a, an associate and eventually a full professor at, at Dartmouth, which is a good amount of money and really allowed me um, to build my lab and to have that flexibility to hire the extra postdoc, the extra graduate student to pay for travel. Um, and that makes you more competitive for grants. It allows you to be more productive on grants. So um, this is a, a big strategy point um, as you think about your faculty career. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Jason will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Marilyn. Ricardo Enrique's uh, Enrique Lab, at, at Enrique Lab on Twitter, tweeted on May 11th, what's the catchphrase your, uh, from your PhD supervisor that stuck with you and that you hold as lemma. And so for me, my, my, my PhD advisor, who I'm mentioning for the second time in this podcast, um, had a a number of things he would say, most of them I don't hold as lemma, so I'm not going to repeat them. (laughs) Um, but, but one of the things that he said that, that stuck with me my entire career, and I think is, is dead on. And he said, uh, people first program second and hardware dead last. He used to repeat that over and over again, but I think, you know, it was really to put the emphasis on that people, when you're building a research program, uh, that people are the most important part of that. And uh, so I, I like that. And that stuck with me. Um, if you go through the replies to this, there's some good responses in there. I pulled out two that I really like. The first one is six months in the lab can save you three hours of reading the literature. I love that. That is so, so awesome. And the second one is, if I'm reading your paper or grant, make it so clear that I don't have to put my beer down. That's great. Oh, that's really good. Um, well, I, I did not see the tweet, but I'll contribute. I have two lemmas that um, that I, I say them often to my lab now. 
Um, one is from my PhD supervisor. The other one is from one of my peer grad students. But so in case those of you listening don't know, Jason was my PhD supervisor. So if you didn't know that, now you know. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> but <laughs> you to- told me early on, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're giving a talk, never apologize. If you are about to apologize for the look of your slide or what you're about to say, don't apologize. Just don't make the slide like that and don't say it. And that has stuck with me. And I tell students all the time, I'll see them give a practice talk and they say, I'm sorry, this table is hard to read. No, you chose to make a tiny table. I said, you know, Jason used to say, don't apologize in your talk. In your talk. You're the authority in the room. Don't apologize. Just don't do the thing. Now, if I start coughing like crazy, I'll apologize. Like, sorry for the noise through the microphone. But I, you know, I tell people all the time, don't apologize for your slide. Don't apologize for your opinion. Just if you're going to show the slide or say the thing, don't apologize. So that was one of yours that I stuck with. Um, And the other one is actually about our PhD advisor. So this was uh, a colleague, Trisha Thornton Wells, was a graduate student um, with Jonathan Haynes and co-mentored by Jason at Vanderbilt. And we used to laugh, and I still tell people this all the time, that, you know, when you get really disappointed about results, um, every time you'd go into cha- to talk to Jason, he would be able to find the, the silver lining, the bright side, like how can you take these negative results and turn them into a paper? And so Trisha would come back into the lab Every time she met with Jason and she was like, Jason Moore, he can turn a turd into a paper every time. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Marilyn, for that one. <laughs> but it's, it's a truth that even when you have crappy results, there is a lesson in there. There is a story in there that other people can learn from. And, um, and I think we learned that from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, The next news item, there was an interesting paper published on May 17th in Nature Biotechnology by Weiss and Jacobson on a knowledge graph method for predicting the scientific impacts of published papers. They analyzed literature from 42 biotech-related journals between 1980 and 2019. They claimed to be able to predict 19 out of 20 seminal biotechnologies between 1980 and 2014. Could this work for informatics methods and software? I think it's a good question. So uh, we'll have a link to the show notes uh, or a link to the paper in the show notes, but very interesting piece of work. Yeah, this was an interesting paper that generated a lot of discussion on Twitter. Not everybody was a big fan of, of this work. Okay, moving on. Um, there was a very interesting piece in the New York Times, which I really liked. Uh, this is from May 18th. And the title of the piece uh, is, BMI a scam, body mass index. So they review the history of BMI as a biomarker and ask whether it's a useful predictor of individual health. And the issue is that the role of BMI as a biomarker has been assessed. And of course, um, it's been shown to be associated with a whole bunch of diseases at the population level. However, there's tremendous heterogeneity and variability at the individual level. So one of the examples they give in the piece is that, you know, BMI does not consider whether weight uh, which is a func- which is part of the, the, the function BMI, is due to bone? Is it due to muscle? Is it due to fat? And so if you're using this population level indicator to predict individual risk, you need to know whether their weight is due to bone, muscle, or fat, because it makes a difference for their individual risk. For example, muscular athletes can have a very high BMI, 
despite having very little fat. And that gives them a very different risk profile than somebody with the same BMI who has much less muscle mass and very high fat. So um, I, this was a very insightful piece and it resonates with me because um, this is exactly how I think about genetics and precision medicine. You know, we, we develop polygenic risk scores from genome-wide association studies uh, that are population-based. Those risks are, those, those coefficients in the logistic regression model that we use in a polygenic risk score are derived from the population level, and we're using them to say something about an individual. Well, that variant may have a very different effect depending on the kind of person it's in, depending on the genetic background, depending on the environmental history of the person. And we don't take that into consideration when we're predicting individual risk. So anyway, insightful piece, highly recommend you read it. I think there's some important lessons in there for thinking about precision medicine and predicting individual risk. Okay, next up is um, a nature career column uh, from June 1st that highlighted the cartoon guide to bioinformatics uh, by cartoonist uh, <clears throat> Ed uh, Himmelblau. And this is really interesting. I had a lot of fun looking at these cartoons. I think many of them will resonate with our informatics, our bioinformatics colleagues. And we have a link here in the show notes if you want to go check them out. Great. I definitely need to check all those out. I love those kind of comics. Uh, the next item, there was an interesting paper by Dr. Russ Altman and colleagues in the June issue of Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics looking at the prevalence of clinically actionable pharmacogenetic variants in nearly 500,000 subjects from the UK Biobank. They find that 99.5% of individuals may have an atypical response to at least one drug. On average, they may have an atypical response to 10.3 drugs. Further, nearly 24% of participants have been prescribed a drug for which they are predicted to have an atypical response definitely feeds the argument that we should be testing patients for pharmacogenetic variants. Yeah, I saw them present this work at PSB this year, um, back in January. And this is definitely uh, really important work. I think, you know, I've been promoting and talking about preemptive pharmacogenetic testing for quite a while. It's something that we're having a lot of conversations about at Penn. And I think, you know, the more and more things that we see like this just further motivates um, our agenda in thinking about the importance of doing that to improve precision medicine and patient health. Yeah, that's a very interesting study. Um, thanks, Marilyn. As many of us know, the human genome reference sequences are incomplete uh, with about 8% not sequenced or documented. And this past week or so, a bioarchive paper um, appeared from the telomere to telomere consortium um, and uh, they report on what they claim is the first truly complete 3 billion base pair sequence of the human genome. And this is a quote from the paper. It says, uh, the new reference includes gapless assemblies for all 22 autosomes plus chromosome X, corrects numerous errors, and introduces nearly 200 million base pairs of novel sequence containing over 2,000 paralogous gene copies, and 115 of which are predicted to be protein uh, coding. Um, I don't know. I, this is exciting. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised that it's taken this long for us to generate a new, more complete 
uh, reference sequence. But uh, anyway, it looks like an important paper, and it's certainly gotten a lot of lot of tweets on uh, on Twitter. Yeah, it's really exciting. And on the one hand, it's surprising that it took so long. But on the other hand, I went to one of the strategic planning sessions that NHGRI had over the last couple of years as they put out their strategic vision 2020, you know, that came out, I think, maybe October. I went to a meeting about that, it, maybe it's two years ago now, about, that was doing, you know, the early stages of strategic planning. And they talked about this being one of the goals having an actual end-to-end sequence and people were talking about how they needed to fund initiatives and they needed, you know, different um, technology and different infrastructure. And so on the other hand, when I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, they did it already? They talked about how this had to happen in the next 10 years. And like, to me, it happened in two. But on the other hand, you know, the, the original sequence came out 20 years ago. So on the other hand, you know, it's just, it's great <laughs> to see that it's come. Very exciting. Um, this next one is a, a paper by, now I'm not sure if it's lower power at all or lower power at all. I'm not sure, Jason, do you know how we pronounce this author's last name? I, I do not, okay. but uh, I, I think you have a 50-50 chance yep. there. So lower power at all or lower power at all. And I apologize if for whichever one of those two is wrong. Hopefully one of them's right, uh, regardless published a paper, May 25th in PLOS Biology, uh, that discusses the hardships and risks that junior faculty face from the impacts of COVID-19. These include access to startup funds, supply shortages, working from home, immigration, hiring freezes, the list goes on and on. They note that this has hit women and underrepresented groups especially hard. They recommend funding agencies, search committees, and promotion and tenure committees take all of this into account, and they call for the scientific community to step up and help those impacted by this pandemic. Really important paper. I think we're going to see more of these and more suggestions on how how we can help in the coming year or two. I I heard someone say the other day that it's probably going to take three to five years to recover kind of from what damage has been done over the the last year and a half from the pandemic. And in particular for underrepresented groups and women, many of whom have had to leave the workforce, it may take even longer to get things back to where they were in terms of kind of getting those individuals back into the workforce. Yeah, I I agree. Very important paper and definitely, yeah, I, I, I think it probably will take three to five years. That's a really scary thought that it's going to take that long for a lot of our our junior faculty and especially women and underrepresented minorities to dig dig themselves out of this last year and the impact of it. It's um it's it's seems daunting and depressing, but we, we all have to roll up our sleeves and help them. Okay, next up, uh, NBC News reported on May twenty fifth that from April 8th to May 15th of 2021, there were 477 passenger misconduct incidents on Southwest Airlines aircraft. And they highlight a a recent incident in which a flight attendant was assaulted by a passenger and actually lost two teeth. Some of this is due to mask mandates and travel restrictions. And I think just the the kind of ugly ugliness in the United States right now. And I don't know. I read this piece and was really shocked by it. That's a lot of incidents on Southwest Airlines in a very short amount of time. Um, And I I can't help but think, you know, we're going to start flying again here pretty soon. 
Um, maybe not a lot, but it's a little worrisome to imagine getting on plane and having these unruly passengers and, and, and having them disrupt flights. I, I hope it's a, a, a momentary blip and, and not here to stay. Oh, I hope so. It is really frightening. I actually saw a video yesterday. It went viral on Facebook of a passenger taking down another passenger who was trying to get into the cockpit. And the guy just kept saying, we need to stop the plane. We need to stop the plane. We need to stop the plane over and over. And they, there were two passengers holding him and a flight attendant, and they had to like duct tape his feet and hands. It was, I couldn't stop watching it, but it was like appalling and frightening to see. It's like people have lost their mind. And it, it looked like he was having a mental breakdown, like he was in a full-blown panic. I don't think it was, you know, a, a nefarious or terrorist activity. I think he freaked out, which We've all been home in our houses without masks on at home for more than a year. So yeah, I think re-entry needs to be um, gentle and slow. And and yeah, I hope oh, I hope they get a hold of this or get this under control before I get on a plane. I, I'm definitely not I'm not excited to get on a plane anytime soon. All right, the next piece, a May twelfth piece in science suggests that we will see more hybrid in-person and virtual meetings more moving forward. If successful, this could become the new normal and allow people who don't want to travel who or who are unable to travel due to conflicts or lack of funding to still participate. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves over the next few years. In particular, I think it's a really great um, sign if we can find a way to do this, it will help international participation and underrepresented group participation in meetings and conferences moving forward. People who before, you know, could never have traveled to the U.S. for this meeting or could have never traveled across the U.S. to go to a meeting, but now they can just do so from the comfort of home or their lab. Yeah, I think a lot of conferences and symposia are planning for this mixed hybrid in-person model knowing that it's it's going to be popular i think i think a lot of people are not going to want to travel um i i love the idea of giving talks at other universities virtually and not having to travel uh to give a talk and i've given a number of talks this last year virtually and i think it's you know at other universities i think it's gone really well i think networking at conferences is still going to be more productive in person but if you're just giving a talk and meeting with some you know getting to know some people at another university, I think virtual can work a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, next. Um, there was a really interesting piece in New Scientist magazine from May 19th on how artificial intelligence has been of little use for diagnosing COVID-19. Uh, the piece was written by Dr. Michael Roberts, um, who was the lead author on a March 15th paper in Nature Machine Intelligence which did a systematic review of COVID-19 papers published between January and October of 2020 using machine learning to diagnose COVID from lung imaging. Of the 62 papers that met their inclusion criteria, uh, they determined that none, zero, had clinically useful results. And that was surprising to me. I, I was like shocked. Not a single one had clinically useful results. And one of the reasons they point out is that there's a bias due to comparing the chest x-rays of COVID-19 positive people who tend to be adults and COVID-19 negative controls who tended to be younger and even children. 
And so what was happening was that the machine learning models were modeling age differences in the x-rays and not actually differences due to COVID. So it's a really good lesson in the pitfalls of clinical machine learning and artificial intelligence and highly recommend taking a look at this. This, um, These uh, uh, papers circulated widely on social media and a lot of people have been thinking about this. Okay, next up, um, there was a really interesting piece from Gartner.com on May 19th on a prediction that they made that 70% of organizations, and, and I think they're mostly thinking about businesses here, not, not academia, but 70% of businesses will shift their focus from big data to small data by 2025. In other words, there'll be a focus on the least amount of data that you need that can still provide useful insights. So I think, we're going to see a return to this kind of thinking in the biomedical sciences as well as deep learning and big data kind of runs its course. Insights come from good experimental design. They come from expert knowledge. They come from data selected to answer a specific question rather than throwing an algorithm at, a, at all the data. So I, I think this idea that insights are just going to drop from the sky from big data is fading fast. And I think we're going to see a return to more strategic, smaller data kind of, you know, more focused research question kind of studies. Agreed. Next, there is a nice paper by Vable et al, published April 8th in the American Journal of Epidemiology on code review for enhancing reproducibility. They write, and this is a quote, code review is a straightforward technique used by the software industry to reduce the likelihood of coding bugs. The systematic implementation of code review in epidemiologic research projects could not only improve science, but also decrease stress, accelerate learning, con contribute to team building, and codify best practices. They outline a feasible process to implement this, and we'll have a link to this paper in the show notes. Yeah, I thought this was a really nice paper, and, and it, it's it's... What I like about it is it not only points out the importance of code review, but they kind of lay out a, a practical strategy for how you might, uh, you might implement it. Okay, next, um, as some of you know, I like old programming languages and fourth is a very interesting stack-based programming language, which first appeared more than 50 years ago in 1970. And there have been a huge number of variants of the fourth language over the years. And somebody actually took the time to build a fourth family tree. And so if you, if you go to the, the link in the show notes and click on this, you will see this you know, dendrogram of the evolutionary relationships of all the different variants of the fourth programming language. It's not complete. Uh, I actually like fourth. Uh, and would love to learn more about it. Um, but one of the versions of fourth that I was thinking of working with was not on this list. So it's not complete. But anyway, it's an amazing effort that somebody took the time to do this. And if you love programming languages, uh, I recommend taking a look. That's cool. I've never even heard of fourth, but I'm going to check it out. Uh, the last item for today, the Washington Post published an opinion piece, which cited a study that indicates that 83% of CEOs want workers back full-time, while only 10% of workers want to return full-time. A standoff is coming. Those numbers are really far apart. <laughs> um, I think this is playing out at universities all over the U.S. as well. Um, this is a very interesting topic. We will probably be talking about this 
uh, in some capacity at every podcast for the next six months or so, because <laughs> it, it's coming, you know, change is happening and whether, you know, I don't think we're going to flip a switch and have everyone go back, but I also know a lot of CEOs and leaders of universities want their campus populated and full and vibrant again. So this is going to be interesting. All right, we will have a link to that in the show notes. And that is it for the news and items of interest for today. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Now on to our software segment. Jason is going to introduce the AS review package. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. Um, we, uh, we had a news item earlier about a systematic review of machine learning uh, papers for diagnosing COVID. And, you know, systematic reviews are a great way to draw conclusions from the literature, but they can be very time consuming. I, I personally, I've never done a system. I've done a lot of review papers, but I've never done a systematic review. Have you done any, Marilyn? have not because they are so intimidating. It's a lot of work. Right. So uh, Shoot It All published a paper in Nature Machine Intelligence in February on an open source machine learning framework for the efficient and transparent systematic review. They call their package AS Review, which stands for Active Learning Systematic Review. And I, I don't know, I, I haven't tried this software, but um, it could be a real time saver and, and might draw in some of us who have never done a systematic review uh, to, to do it, you know, um, if this makes it easy. Um, so anyway, uh, there's a link here in the show notes to the paper and uh, be sure and let us know if you give it a try. That sounds really cool. So you can put in any topic and it will do the machine learning and AI to find the right papers and studies. Yeah, I think you provide the criteria of what you're looking for, and it'll go out and find the right literature. Wow. Maybe don't tell the grad students about this. They're, <laughs> it's going to take away their, their PubMed and Google Foo. <laughs> now on to our open data segment. Marilyn is going to tell us about a new drug repurposing resource for COVID-19. Thanks, Jason. The Cancer Genomics in Biocomputing of Complex Diseases Lab at Bar-Lan University in Israel has created a web resource for COVID-19 drug repurposing. They used text mining, machine learning, and manual curation of the latest published data on drugs and drug targets for COVID-19. The resource currently includes data on more than 450 drugs. The web app allows you to do a search on one of the 450 drugs and it returns a list of clinical trials and published studies inferred to be linked to that drug. All the raw data can be downloaded, and the resource was included in the 2021 Nucleic Acids Research Database issue, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Now on to our history segment. We are fortunate to have our biomedical informatics historian, Dr. John Holmes, back. He's going to provide a two-part series on the history of expert systems. 
Hi, I'm John Holmes, Professor of Medical Informatics and Epidemiology and Associate Director of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics for Medical Informatics. I've been at Penn since graduating from here in 1976, except for a five-year stint as a blood bank and hematology lab tech at Pennsylvania Hospital. Ever since my undergrad years, I've been around computers in some way, starting with my senior thesis work in sociology using punch cards on an IBM 360 mainframe. Subsequently, I had a chance to work with a laboratory reporting system, supported the computing needs of a growing epidemiology research group at Penn, earning a master's in information systems and a PhD in information science along the way. Informed by my lengthy experience in epidemiology and information systems, I wrote my dissertation on evolution-assisted discovery of sentinel features in epidemiologic surveillance. I continue to work in the intersection of epidemiology, informatics, and machine learning with a special interest in novel approaches to epidemiologic modeling. Today, I'm delighted to share with you some thoughts about expert systems. This is actually the first of three segments on this fascinating approach to representing knowledge and making inferences with that knowledge using a computer and specialized software. So let's get started. First of all, what is an expert system? Well, an expert system is a computer software system that can reason in ways that are similar to the way one reasons as a human. We reason or make inferences in several ways, inductively, abductively, and deductively. And these are just three examples that are important to artificial intelligence. But this deserves a little explanation. So let's consider inference in general. All reasoning involves of making a conclusion about some phenomenon we experience in a given situation. We reason inductively when we make conclusions based on examples from things we have previously experienced or observed, and then apply generalizations based on those prior experiences or observations to a current situation. This bottom-up inferential process is typical of many machine learning approaches. In abducting re abductive reasoning, we make conclusions based on facts that are known. A common example of abductive reasoning is seen in detective work, where a case is built from observations of facts to create a body of evidence. In deductive reasoning, we derive conclusions based on facts that emerge during the inferential process. Put another way, we deduce facts from the top down using rules. Expert systems typically reason deductively. So let's talk about expert systems. There are three basic components to any expert system. There is a user interface that facilitates human or possibly other, maybe a, a, a device, like a signal generation device. Um, and the, this interaction with the system is facilitated through this user interface. Think of this as a consultation where you as a user approach the system as a expert in the box. The knowledge base is a th second component and that is where facts and rules are stored in a manner that makes them easily retrievable in response to user input. And then third, the most important component is the inference engine. And this is where the deductive reasoning occurs through the matching of facts and components of rules. For example, if you have a fact such as apple, this could match to a rule in the knowledge base that states if apple, then fruit. Note the context of this. This is an if-then rule, very, very common in an expert system. If apple, then fruit. The deduction is fruit, and this is saved in the knowledge base as a fact for future linking to another rule, such as if fruit, then food. 
So if you enter Apple in the interface, the system would return food. This is an example of chained inference where facts fire rules that line a string of facts together one at a time. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this very brief walk down an important memory lane in the history of computing, artificial intelligence, and biomedical informatics. In the next segment, I look forward to presenting the history of expert systems from their earliest development in the 1960s through their heyday in the 1980s. Thanks again. Okay, on to a brief conference update. Um, just a reminder that AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association annual symposium this year, 2021, will be held in person in San Diego, October 30th through November 3rd. The submission deadlines have passed, but it's probably not too early to start, you know, to mark that off on your calendar and start thinking about whether you want to travel to AMIA. Um, I don't know, actually, I just thought of this, but I don't know if AMIA is going to be one of these mixed virtual and in-person meetings, but we should try to find that out and re report back to you. Uh, next, uh, the Intelligent Systems and Molecular Biology Conference will be held virtually July 26th through the 30th, so that's next month. Um, the paper and abstract deadlines have passed, but because it's virtual and if you've never attended ISMB, this might be a good year. A lot of conferences have cheaper registrations and attending virtually is super easy. And so we'll provide a, a link here uh, in the show notes. And um, I gave a keynote at ISMB last year virtually and it went really well. And uh, I have a student presenting uh, a, a research talk at ISMB this year. Great. Uh, the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, or PSB, will be held in person in January. It's the 3rd to the 7th of 2022. It's on the big island of Hawaii, as usual. The paper submission deadline is coming. It is on August 2nd, and that is a final deadline. This is not a conference that typically pushes the deadline and gives you more time. So August 2nd is the deadline. The topic areas this year include AI-driven advances in protein or in modeling of protein structure, big data imaging genomics, computational approaches to crop biology, human intrigue, meta-analysis approaches for big questions with big data, and precision medicine using artificial intelligence to improve diagnostics and healthcare. Really looking forward to PSB this year and keeping my fingers crossed that it remains in person. So since uh, uh, I've got my PhD advisor on the brain based on our previous discussions on the podcast, um, uh, the crop science, uh, crop biology session looks really interesting to me. My, my advisor actually did a PhD in, in crop science and published his first couple papers in the journal Crop Science. So I've got that, that crop biology roots in my DNA. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, finally, um, I uh, assume that artificial intelligence and machine learning will start to appear in basic science and clinical conferences, you know, non-informatics conferences as tracks. I think we're probably going to see more and more of this. And so if you see um, a basic science or clinical conference or disease-specific conference that has an AI or machine learning or related track, uh, be sure and let us know. And we'll, um, we'll include it in the podcast and let everybody know, I, uh, I think... AI and, and ML is, is everywhere now and is having an impact in a lot of different places. So 
Uh, anyway, we're happy to highlight those here as you see them, let us know. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our discussion topic is how to motivate yourself to write papers and grants. Marilyn will introduce the topic. Thanks, Jason. Okay, we can probably all relate to this. So imagine you have a deadline coming up. So what do you do? And, and this could be for a manuscript or a grant. Either way, you have a deadline. So you block time on your calendar. You get your favorite cup of coffee or tea. You sit down at your computer. You open the Word doc. And then you look at the flashing cursor and a blank screen. and Nothing happens. You have no words. You have no idea what you're going to write. And then you go check your email. You go look at Twitter. And like suddenly your writing window is over. Sometimes it's hard to even just go sit down to do it. Like, you know, you have to do it. And so what I've even caught myself doing is I know I have a deadline, but I don't block the chunks of time because I'm like, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And now my calendar's full and I have no blocks of time to write. And so I have to squeeze in little tiny pockets of writing in between meetings, before the workday starts, at the end of a million Zoom calls. But when you're getting really close to the deadline, procrastinating and isn't going to work anymore. So what I thought it would be nice to talk about, or we thought it would be great to talk about, is how do you motivate yourself to do the writing before you're at that point, that like now you're writing at midnight, and two and three in the morning, which you know is not your best work. So how do you motivate yourself? I tried to put together a list of the things that I do for myself and that I encourage my students and postdocs to do when I see that they're um, struggling with getting things written. Um, so one kind of huge, uh, huge important piece is to outline what you have to write. I know a lot of people that don't like to make outlines. They like to just write and free form, write whatever the thing is, whether it's a grant or a paper, they just want to sit down and write. For me, at least, it does not work. I find it daunting to sit down and write 12 pages. Or, you know, I have to write a manuscript and I have no idea what's going to go where. If you can outline the grant and have, I mean, when I start a document, there's a specific aims, blank page, significance, blank page, innovation, blank page, approach. And that's the start. I know the sections that have to go in. And then I just start plopping in the text that goes there. And by outlining it, you have an idea of what you need to write, how long it's going to take, because now you see, you know, what are all the sections that I need to do? And this feeds into the second point, which is to break the project down into chunks. It, it's daunting to write 12 pages, but if you say, I need to write the significant section that needs to be one page or less, writing a page is not that daunting. I think most of us could write a page, you know, just, you know, in an hour. But if you think you have to write the whole thing at one time, that can be daunting. So chunk it and then break the project down and only assign yourself to write that one that one section on that day. Um, I do think this idea about setting aside writing time is really important. And I think we all have to figure out for ourselves whether having big chunks of time or small chunks of time works better for us. So I know that there are some people who need, like once they get into the writing mode, like it's a writing day. They are gonna write for four to six hours and that's all they can do that day. I have a hard time writing for four to six hours straight. I get distracted and I lose my train of thought. And so for me, I do much better writing 
for 30 to 60 minutes and then go do something else for a bit and then come back and write again for 30 to 60 minutes. But that's me. I know a lot of people who like to write for the whole day, but I find when I have blocked a whole day on my calendar and I say like, I'm going to write this grant all day on Thursday, I sit down for dinner on Thursday and I kick myself because I wrote two pages, but then I did a bunch of random other things that were not productive all day because I had this free day. And so for me, I try to do smaller chunks, um, smaller kind of chunks on my calendar to get writing done. So for you, figuring out what works best so that you're motivated to write in that window. Blocking the time and then playing solitaire does not motivate you for the writing. You have to actually write in that block. <laughs> I know people who do that. I've seen them do it. Um, the next one is um, this one. I think I, I don't remember who taught me this. It might've been you or else maybe a, somebody in one of my classes in grad school. But the idea is just write. When you sit down to write for the first time, write it, take the thoughts in your head and get them on the paper. Don't edit each sentence as you go. Don't polish and try to make it perfect because we have ideas much faster than we can type or write. And so if you have your ideas flowing and then you stop on every sentence and you go back and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I like the way I said that. Let me let me add this adverb instead or, or let me find a reference for this. Then you lose the flow. So what I like to do is just sit down and write the ideas out of my head. I don't add the references. If I know, you know the author, I'll put in, you know, I know that th this is a, a Williams and Moore from you know, around 2005. So I'll just put it in and later I'll add references. But I don't sit there and worry about you know, using the same descriptive word three sentences in a row. I'll never submit it that way. But if the word that I'm thinking of right now is you know, integration and I say, you know, we're gonna do this data integration, we're gonna do the integration through this and integration is so important for that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've said integration three times. When you're writing it the first time, I don't think, I think it's just better to get it out of your head. And then later you can polish and work on the flow of the sentences and the structure and, and the grammar and, and all of that. So I like to just write and get the ideas out of my head. Then I go back later and edit and polish. Um, sometimes, this is another um, strategy that I've used, is to use voice to text. If I find that I have a lot of ideas and I just don't have the speed to type or write them fast enough, I will just open an app on my phone and talk and just say, as if I were writing, I just say all of the things I wanna write and then I do voice to text. It always gets lots of words misspelled, especially the, you know, the scientific words, the, these apps don't know what they are, but it at least gets most of the ideas out of my head. And sometimes, I mean, I found like when I'm driving in the car, if I use voice to text, and then I copy and paste it into a document. I have said three pages of words during my drive. And I have to go back and edit it and you know correct all the mistakes. But while driving, I got three pages written and I got all the ideas out of my head. And they're not perfect that way, but I get very frustrated when I have ideas and I don't write them down. And then later I go to write and I'm like, oh, I know I had it how I was gonna say this, but I don't remember. So I do use voice to text quite a bit. Um, if you can delegate sections of your writing, do that. It is a lot easier to edit text than it is to write de novo. So especially on grants, 
I will try to find colleagues and collaborators to take certain sections that are their expertise. You know, if they have the preliminary data for this piece, let them write that part rather than you try to write, you know, the text to go with their figure. Let them write that part. It's easy and fast for them. And then you can edit and fit it into the rest of the proposal. Um, next, and I've lost track of the numbers. I should have numbered these. Uh, the next one is to reuse your own text when you can and then edit it to fit what you're writing now. This is something that's certainly easier as you become more senior in the faculty ranks or you know, senior as a postdoc compared to a new grad student. But as you kind of grow through the ranks, keep all of your old documents. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've taken text from one of my grants and used it in another grant. Now I have to edit it, you have to update it, you have to make it fit the new thing that you're writing but you don't have to rewrite the whole thing de novo again. You can use what you have and it makes it much faster. And actually, when I sit down to write a grant and I have the, you know, just these blank pages, if I can just grab even like overview of the study team, overview of the, you know, this part of the aim, a description of the data set that I'm using, a description of the replication data set, the reason that this project is important, like all of a sudden I have five pages and I haven't written a word. I've just copy and pasted pieces and that feels really productive and feels really good. So if you can reuse text and then just edit the text rather than writing it new, I think it, it just, it's motivating, right? When you see you went from zero pages to five pages in like 10 minutes. Um, the next one, uh, this is less about the actual art of the writing, but it's to reward yourself. So I will often, especially when I'm super unmotivated, which happens sometimes, and I'm like, I really just don't wanna write this thing. So I will do things like, if you get done with this section, you can go pick up a Starbucks drink. Or if you get done with this section, you can go out for dinner tonight instead of cooking. Or you can go buy you know, the thing that's in your Amazon cart that you've been hesitating buying. So some way, to, to basically, you know, reward yourself for doing the thing that you don't want to do. And, you know, there's been a ton of psychology literature, right? And tons of research on, you know, the art of reward and kind of getting that positive <laughs> feedback. So I, sometimes I we have to do it to ourselves. I, I prefer the pain and suffering. I wear a shock collar and... <laughs> <laughs> trying to get writing done and you are hitting a block, take a break, go do something else. I mean, I did say earlier, it's, I get very disappointed when I've blocked the day and then I've taken so many breaks that I got nothing done. But I'm also even angrier at myself if I sit and stare at the computer and nothing happens, but I also got nothing done. And so if you need to, you know, go for a walk or go, you know, just do something else for a while and come back to it, it is absolutely the worst to just sit there and stare at the screen and have nothing happen. Um, and then the last thought that I had, and I've tried this once, but I know a few colleagues that do this a lot, and that is to find a writing partner or group. Um, I know a few people who go on writing retreats um, a month or two before grant deadlines. They will go to a hotel or an Airbnb. It's like three people, and they go write for the weekend. 
and they, you know, they have like a writing session in the morning and then they have lunch together and then they have a writing session and then they have a coffee break and then they have a writing session and then they go to dinner and they basically, you know, they're all working on their own writing. They're not writing the same thing, but they motivate each other. And like, you see someone else writing. And so you're like, okay, I'm, I should be writing. And, and then they get these little rewards throughout the day because they have colleagues that they're with that they can like, celebrate that they got stuff done, you know, in that window of time. So um, I personally haven't tried that, but I want to. I keep hearing about these writing retreats and, and I heard about them right before the pandemic and obviously uh, couldn't do things like that over the last year, but I'm looking forward to trying to find a group that I could do that with. Um, so those were my kind of motivation strategies that I use for myself. Uh, to try to get writing done when I don't feel like it. Uh, Jason, do you have strategies that you use? Yeah, this is a besides your shot caller, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I left it at work. I don't have it here at home. Um, <laughs> this is a this is a fantastic list. I, I'm not sure I have anything to add. I agree with everything you said. These are outstanding strategy. I think what I would say. First of all, if you're a procrastinator or a perfectionist, get over it. That is not a recipe for success in academia. You have to publish papers. You have to submit grants. You cannot procrastinate. You cannot be a perfectionist. You have to get things done, get them out the door. It, it just is the way the system works. It's unfortunate, but it's true. So if you are a big time procrastinator or a perfectionist and that gets in the way, you need to find a way to overcome that. Um, and I think some of the tips that you have here, Marilyn, help with that. But those those are, you know, th those are, I don't know. I, I don't know. Talk, talk to other professors, you know, talk to other procrastinators, talk to other perfectionists and find strategies for getting over that. Um, I would emphasize the small chunks, the chunking uh, strategy. I like that a lot. I think, you know, just try to make progress every single day, whether it's one paragraph or a page or a few sentences or a few notes, um, scribbled notes, whatever it is, make progress every single day. Don't let a day go by. Um, and that, that can build momentum. And, and, you know, once, once you've gone through a week or two weeks of making little bits of progress, all of a sudden you've got a body of stuff, right? You've got a couple pages and that gives you the, the confidence to then make more progress. That is such a great point. I just heard that bit of advice and I forgot about it till you just said it. Um, Brene Brown interviewed Doug Conan, who used to be the what, CEO of Campbell Soup and uh, several other big businesses, but he just published a book and his writing advice was to write two pages every day. Pretty sure it was him. Now that I'm saying it, I'm like, wait, was it a different podcast? Anyway, the idea was two pages every day. If you feel like you could write more, don't do two pages every day. And then, you know, you've written a book or you've written a grant, you've written whatever the thing is. Two pages is doable. So just set aside the time to do that small chunk every day. Yeah, and if you're writing a grant, you know, if you're writing a page or two every day, you know, after a couple of days, you've got the significance section done, right? And then you write the innovation section and you just chip away at it, little bits and pieces every day. And 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 with some of the other things you talked about, you know, not not, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect the first time, just get it on paper, but make that little bit of progress every day. And I think for procrastinators, that's the way to do it. Um, 
you know, because it might only take you 15 minutes or 30 minutes to write that paragraph or those couple paragraphs and, and just have that be the task for the day. So that's, that's just so important. And, and I love the, the advice, the writing group, writing vacation idea. And, you know, I have written my best grants while traveling. I've written them on airplanes and hotel rooms. Um, I wrote a S10, a million dollar S10 equipment grant in a coffee shop in Germany. Every day I would go at the end of the day, I would take two hours and go to this coffee shop and write. And I wrote that grant and it got funded on the first try, a million dollar equipment grant. Um, wow. And I, I, I have so many memories of writing great grants in hotel rooms. Hotel rooms are quiet. You don't have any of the distractions of home, you know, uh, they're unbelievably quiet, isolated places where you can really focus without distraction. And so I've written a lot of grants in hotel rooms because, you know, when you, when you become a busy professor, you travel a lot and you have to write when you're away, but there's something about not only the peace and quiet of a hotel room or, or the white noise of a coffee shop, but there's just something about a change of scenery that stimulates the writing, you know, the, the writing machinery. And, and I don't know, I, I, I think I write better when I'm traveling than when I'm at home. No, I think that's another great suggestion. And people have asked me, this is maybe we should talk about, you know, maximizing your productivity during travel at some point on another podcast, but people have asked, how do you like you're traveling a, a month the, during the month of your grant deadline? Like, how are you traveling then? And I've said, like, I get great writing done when I'm traveling. I don't have the commute, you know, into work. I don't have the distractions of the office. I don't have the distractions from home. And they were perplexed and said, oh, gosh, like, when I'm at the conference, I just do the conference and then I, like, take the evenings off. I I don't really do work in the hotel room. And I was like, oh, you're going to want to change that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I agree with you. I think it's it's not a vacation. It it's work, and I find it can be incredibly productive chunks of time. Not even like killing yourself overworking. Just you know, you don't have all of these other things going on. So it's a great time to get writing done. Remember that time we were? I think it was the Gecko Conference, and we were all there were like four of us in the lab in a hotel room, all working on PSB papers or something. Some we were all working on paper deadlines. Yeah. And we were, we were motivating each other, right? We were all banging away on our laptops, trying to get these papers done for this deadline. We were motivating each other, encouraging each other. Um, I, that worked out really well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's it for this segment. Hopefully these tips are helpful to get you over that, that hump and get the writing done. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, do you have any closing thoughts? Sure. Thanks, Jason. Um, well, first, I just want to say this was a lot of fun today. Um, you know, I remember when we talked about doing this, neither of us had really done podcasts at all. It was a, a new idea. And every time we do this, I enjoy it more. I'm really enjoying podcasting. So uh, thanks for the idea that we put this together. It, it's a lot of fun. Um, the other thing that I would close with, I'm just, I don't know, I'm really excited for the fall and for what's coming or and I guess summer is here now I should really be excited about summer but I'm a person who really thrives in change and and I really enjoy growth and I think this kind of post-COVID reality that we're emerging 
out of right now. It's just, it's going to bring about a lot of change. Some of it's going to be hard and take some time to get used to, but I'm just, I'm excited for, for all of that to happen. I think every time we go through hard times, change happens and growth happens. And after it, you always, at least I always tend to reflect back and, and see the positives in what happened. Even the pandemic, there have been lots of positives that, you know, as hard as it's been and terrible as it's been, you know, I really have tried to focus on the positive things that have happened for myself and for my family and for my lab. But I'm just, I'm excited to see, you know, what the future looks like over these next kind of three to six months and and how we how we transition back to whatever the new reality is. Jason, any closing thoughts on your end? So I think I think Winston Churchill said it first, but my department chair at Dartmouth used to say, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." And and I like I like your optimism, Marilyn. And and I think, you know, I would definitely encourage everybody to take some time this summer um, to evaluate the last year and try to pull the positive things out, right? And 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 use it. Uh, like you said, to grow, to make things better, you know, maybe that's a career change or a change in research direction or a change in how you, how you, you know, how you do your job, or I don't know what it is, but try to try, there, there's gotta be for many of us, some positive things amidst all the horribly negative things that we've experienced. There must be some positive things in there and find those things and use them to push you, push yourself forward and to grow and to make yourself better and every crisis does have an upside. Um, you may not realize it at the time, but looking back on crises I've been through, um, I've learned from them, I've grown from them, and sometimes there are opportunities that arise from them that are unanticipated. So, um, so yeah, just keep your keep your eyes and ears open for those those positive things. And I, I just want to say, yeah, it's it, this. I agree. This has been so much fun podcasting with you, Marilyn. And if nothing else, it's a chance for us to chit chat about things we're interested in and to see each other um, despite our busy schedules. So um, it is fun and I've really enjoyed it as well. And I do, I really do. Um, it's a big chunk out of the day for us to, to do the podcast, but I really look forward to it each and every time. So um, yeah, me too. Yeah, it is fun. Um, and I was thinking this morning, um, just feeling thankful to be in the field of biomedical informatics. I know this might sound cheesy, but I was just feeling how lucky I am to have found myself in this particular discipline. You know, it's endless challenges, it's worthy health and healthcare goals, you know, the boom of artificial intelligence, the investments that are being made in informatics and AI and machine learning, the awesome colleagues that we get to hang out with in this field. We're, the biomedical informatics community is awesome. Everybody treats each other so well, and everybody's rowing in the same direction, unlike some of the other fields I've worked in, where there's a lot more competitiveness and competition. It's a very collegial culture, and, and we're really getting, I think, and especially in the COVID area, recognized for what we bring to the table to, to deal with these healthcare challenges. So anyway, I'm, I was just feeling thankful today to be a biomedical informatician. It's a good time to be an informatician. Okay, that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. 
We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.